0: I'm glad you guys are here, and I invite you to open your Bibles with me to uh, John chapter six, New Testament, John six. And as you know, we're in this series called Collision, uh, a series in which we're looking at various people's encounters with Jesus that are recorded specifically by uh, the apostle John. And as unique as each of these encounters are, the one thing we're finding true with all of them, and that is those people who had intentional or even unintentional interactions with Jesus, their lives were seriously impacted one way or another. Up to this point in the study, we've seen the uh, response to Jesus uh, be quite positive, really. You know, a good number of people in the region of Galilee, the region where Jesus grew up, uh, considered themselves to be his students, to be his disciples, and literally followed him all around. Uh, in fact, a couple of weeks ago, we, we talked about how one day Jesus fed several thousand of these people with just five loaves of bread and two fish. Well, the day after that miraculous event, Uh, another large group of these same individuals go out looking for Jesus, um, but they were looking for more bread, and Jesus knew that, and he said, you guys are just looking for more bread, which is why he then said to them, don't look just for food that spoils. He said, look for food that comes from heaven that will give you eternal life. And the people were intrigued by that. They said, well, hey, give us some of that bread. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I'll give for the life of the world. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And then John reports uh, this in verse 60. He says, on hearing this, uh, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are full of the Spirit and life, yet there are some of you who do not believe. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You don't want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and come to know you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And he meant Judas Iscariot, who was one of the group, but uh, would later betray Jesus. Now, as we've seen throughout the series, uh, the encounters that Jesus had with people, the ones we looked at, um, seem to always present several potential topics that we could, we could explore and discuss. Uh, in this case, as Jesus interacts with a very large group of men and women who consider themselves disciples, I mean, there's there's Old Testament symbolism involved. There's there's some allusions to Passover and to Jesus' coming sacrifice, a reference to the Holy Spirit, Jesus's divine nature gets ex, uh, gets revealed, and uh, that he uh, knew in advance who would betray him. I mean, there's a lot going on here, but where I'd like to focus our attention is on the distinction that gets drawn between true discipleship and false discipleship, because what happens here essentially exposes what the people around Jesus actually believed. And it all begins with some hard teaching. Hard teaching. At least that's what many of his disciples called it. And uh, keep in mind, this comment comes at the end of a long discourse in which Jesus uses bread as a metaphor. Several times he refers to himself as bread, uh, the bread from heaven, the bread of life. Uh, and he's speaking figuratively, right? Right? something Jesus did all the time. For example, one time he said to people, I am the light of the world. He didn't mean that big fiery star, yellow star up in the sky around which we orbit. it was, wasn't what he was saying. Uh, during the Last Supper, when he said to his followers, I am the vine, you are the branches, he wasn't claiming to be a plant and saying that they were sticks. Right? When he says to the religious experts in Jerusalem, uh, I am the gate to eternal life, He wasn't claiming to be a wooden door attached to a fence. You know what I'm saying? I mean, Jesus used metaphors. He used similes, word pictures, uh, illustrations. He often spoke figuratively to teach people spiritual truth. Case in point. During his discourse here, he tells this group of disciples, he says, I am the bread. He wasn't saying that he was yeast and flour and water. Right? He's, he's saying, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He explains, my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. Later, he repeats himself. He says again, truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. And then he states it this way. He says, I am the living bread from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. So you tell me, what was Jesus doing? Was he endorsing cannibalism? Well, of course not. Of course not. He was speaking figuratively. He was speaking metaphorically. And therefore, if he is bread, the bread from heaven that gives life everlasting, then eating this bread means what? It means believing. Jesus says that a number of times here. For him, eating, eating means believing. Believing what? Believing that he came to give himself for us. And not just, not just a few of us. Jesus said, this, this bread is my flesh, my life, which I give for the life of the world. I.e., he says, my life for yours. And not only that, but, but this bread metaphor pushes the notion that just as we human beings prioritize food to sustain physical life, so belief in Jesus means that we prioritize him to give and sustain our spiritual lives. Here's my Reiki my translation. Jesus says to the people, I am what you guys need to live forever. And belief in me means that I am your food and drink. I am your everything. I am your ultimate priority. And it's here, in response to this, that um, many of his disciples said, you know, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And, you know, not hard in terms of comprehension, mind you. I mean, They understood what Jesus was saying. But hard in the sense of it it was difficult. It was challenging and nigh unto impossible for a majority of the people to accept. And they didn't. John reports from this time on many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed Jesus. Or put another way, a bunch of so-called disciples become deserters which is so, you know, so tragic to me because, I mean, what were they turning back to? They were turning back to a works-oriented religious system in which they attempted to kind of prove themselves worthy of God's love and acceptance by way of moral performance and adhering, complete adherence to extensive and complicated lists of, of rules, ceremonies, rituals, and regulations. Ironically, it was th- this very system that was just crushing people spiritually just crushing them, which is why when Jesus shows up with a different message, so many people were drawn to him. Even at the beginning of this conversation, Jesus talks to this this crowd about eternal life and how he, the son of man, would give it to them. And they ask him, well, okay, what, what, what must we do? What work must be done? What does God require of us, they said. And Jesus told them, you don't have to do anything. Except what? To believe in the one God has sent, me, Jesus says, "I'll, I'll do the work." It was the message of divine grace. Uh, no earning, only receiving. No doing, only believing. That was Jesus's good news to the people. But a lot of men and women who were hanging around weren't, you know, weren't willing to believe him and weren't willing to accept it. And so, obviously, this this massive group of people consisted of, and for lack of better terminology, consisted of a lot of false disciples. I gotta tell you, over the last few weeks as I've been reading and rereading and studying this text, I always get stuck on the crowd. I get stuck imagining all these people, thinking about uh, these men and women who consider themselves followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, and yet suddenly, they just turn and walk away. They desert him. Why? Might I suggest they did it for various reasons? And I say that because it seems to me there are different types of of false disciples. For example, among this large number of men and women who had come to see Jesus, I'm guessing there were some who, who really followed the crowd more so than the Christ. Now what do I mean by that? Well, have you guys ever heard of mob psychology? Mob psychology is a branch of uh, social science that studies the influence a crowd has on an individual and how it can easily sway a person's thinking, uh, their their, their decision-making, and thus impact their behavior, both good and bad. A mob dynamic is a very powerful thing. It's extremely difficult to go against what the crowd around you is saying or doing. People have a tendency to just thoughtlessly follow along. And studies showed the bigger the crowd, the greater its influence on the individual. And John says this is a huge crowd of people, a great crowd of people, so the power of the crowd must have been intense. The power of the crowd could not only draw individuals thoughtlessly toward Jesus, but just as easily pull them thoughtlessly away from Jesus. With this mob psychology in mind, let me ask you something. Consider this. Is it possible... Is it possible that some of you are being negatively affected by a crowd of non-Christians in your life? Family, friends, work, fellow workers, students. You know, they're, 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 they're kind of influencing you. They're drawing you away from faith, away from Jesus. Because it can happen. It can happen. Or how about the flip side of this? Is it possible, is it possible that you're here this morning and you, you, know, you attend services, you, you're, you're involved in church life and groups and ministries primarily because your family and friends are? And so in essence, you're just kind of drifting along with the church crowd, but you haven't given any real, any real thought to what you as an individual truly believe about Jesus. Maybe it's time you do. Maybe it's time you do it because, see, when it comes to faith, it's not a group decision, you know. It's not a group decision to believe or disbelieve. It's an ind- individual one, and we all have to make it at some point or another. Another type of false discipleship was represented in the crowd by those who followed the miracles more than the Messiah. They, uh, they were fans of the spectacular. They, they weren't actual believers in Jesus. Even John notes earlier in the chapter how a lot of these people pursued Jesus simply because of the show, the spectacular show, the impressive things that he was doing, like healing the sick and and feeding a mass of people with two fish and five loaves of bread. And remember, Jesus said when this crowd came out to him that day, he said, you guys aren't really looking for me, you're just looking for more food. See, there are some people who consider themselves followers of Jesus, disciples, if you will, but if the truth be told, they're, they're, they're more interested in what they, they might get out of this relationship with God than anything else, what they're going to get out of it. It's, it's the idea that, you know, yeah, I'll give Jesus a shot. You know, I'll give this Christian thing a try. If I get something out of it, I'll stick around. But I need to see some return on my investment. I need to, I need to see something in return. I need to get something out of this because if, if I'm sick, I expect to be healed. If I'm, if I'm hungry, I want to be fed. If I'm single and want to, want to get married, I expect you to find me a spouse, God. If I'm poor, then I'm waiting for a windfall of money. Bring it on. If I lost my job, you've got to find me a new one. I'm in this whole following Jesus deal as long as I'm getting what I want, what I feel I need, what I, what I feel I deserve. And if not, I'm out. I'm out. And sure, they approached Jesus with a kind of consumer mentality. Christianity for them is basically a commercial arrangement, an exchange of goods. Among the crowd, some false disciples were those who were following but grumbling. John says Jesus was aware they were grumbling. In fact, at one point he tells them to stop grumbling. And it's interesting, the Greek term for grumble is an onomatopoeia. You guys know what that is, right? You remember what that is, an onomatopoeia? It's a word that sounds like its meaning. It's like our English word um, splash, or hiss, or coo. And uh, the Greek term here is gongudzo. Gongudzo. There was a (laughs) gongudzo. A low gongudzo. A low grumble of discontentment in the crowd. A low grumble of displeasure. Displeasure in what? Displeasure in what Jesus was saying. (laughs) Displeasure in what he was telling the crowd. Displeasure in what he was teaching them. In fact, Jesus addresses it directly, and he asks them, does this offend you? What I'm telling you is, are you offended by this? Maybe it does offend you, Jesus says. But the words I've spoken to you are full of the spirit and life. In other words, he's saying what I'm telling you is absolutely true. And yet there are some of you who don't believe me and who won't listen to me. Now, I've been doing this pastor thing for quite a long time, and over the years, based on my own experience, based on what I've seen, there are always going to be men and women who like Jesus. They like him, and they're willing to follow him as long as his teaching is palatable. As long as he doesn't say something they don't like, or ask them to do something they don't want to do, Make a statement they don't necessarily agree with. You know, they, they, they come to him with conditions. It's, it's Jesus, "Tell me what I want to hear, and we'll be good to go. You know Let me do what I want to do, let me live the way that I want to live, and we'll get along just fine, and I'll decide where you're right and wrong. I'll decide,, you know, whether to do this or that or the other thing, and then I'll act accordingly. I've seen this so often where people claim to be Christians, they claim to be followers of Jesus, but only accept the parts of his teaching they, they like or they agree with. They obey the commands they think are reasonable and ignore the rest. If things get too challenging, if his call to commitment too high, too risky, if he states a point of theology that makes them une- uneasy, gungudzill. They grumble. They complain and they criticize and inevitably they drop out of the church. Well, understand something. If Jesus wasn't as who he claimed to be, deity in the flesh, come to find, love, forgive, and graciously grant us eternal life, then he can't be right just half the time. He can't be right just one quarter of the time. As I see it, it's all or nothing. It's all or nothing, either what he says is true, all that he says is true, or it's, or it's not, it's nothing. That's how I see it. How do you see it? How do you see it? There are other false disciples in the crowd. There are some who followed because of guilt. Men and women who, who knew the commands of God, who knew what God said to be right, true, good, healthy, and best for us as human beings, but simply continued to do the opposite do whatever they wanted, willfully disobey sin. Down deep inside, they knew it was wrong. They knew it was messed up. Um, and they felt bad about it, and, and, and it was their guilt that kind of moved them in Jesus' direction in hopes of hearing, you know, some words of encouragement, some, some assurance, some absolution, some inspirational, motivational type stuff because they longed to feel better about themselves In my opinion, some people show up in church services today with the same thing in mind. Same thing in mind. Be a bit religious. Hear some things Jesus had to say. Sing a few inspirational tunes. Offer a prayer. Give a couple bucks. And maybe leave feeling a little better about themselves. It's kind of a feel-good spirituality. But it's just a superficial It's just superficial. It's just a way to temporarily assuage their guilt until next time. There's no real desire to to open their life to Jesus. There's no real desire to follow him. There's no real desire to believe and, and reorient, allow God to reorient their whole life around loving, serving, and knowing him. It's the kind of person who's hedging their bets, really. That's That's why they come. It's like betting on both teams in the World Series, but it doesn't work. And it won't work. It won't work. And finally, in the crowd around Jesus, false disciples were those who followed because they liked being right. They enjoyed the the academic side of things. They enjoyed the intellectual discussions, the theological parlays. They, they longed for more and more and more and more and more information about God. They wanted, they wanted to be sure they had him figured out, they had him nailed down. They wanted the truth. They wanted sound doctrine. They wanted an accurate bibliology, an accurate hermeneutology, a soteriology, an eschatology, an anesthesiology, ornithology, whatever. They wanted all theologies. <laughs> they wanted all theologies. Why? So then they could say, we're right. We're right. And then look down their noses on the poor slobs who were wrong. They could then be the insiders, you see. They could be the ones with all the answers. For, for, faith, for them, faith was more kind of just about doctrine. It was, it was academic. It was, it was all in their heads, but it, it never made their way down to their to their hearts, and that's problematic. And here's why. If you've been around here any, any length of time, you know that you've heard me say it a million times, and if not a million, I'm working on it. But being a follower of Jesus is not about information. It's not just about information. It's not just academic. It's not just rational. It's experiential. It's practical. It impacts not just how we think, but how we live every single day. Faith is both, true faith is both. Is it for you? All this to say is, there were a lot of men and and women hanging around Jesus, who considered themselves followers, disciples, but they really weren't, they really weren't. And we know they weren't because when Jesus tells them, when he says, look, I am what you need to live forever, I give up my life for you. And so believing in me means I become your food and drink, your ultimate priority. Many of them wanted nothing to do with that kind of discipleship commitment. mm And so they turned away and they stopped following. They, they deserted him. And when that happened, Jesus posed a question to those who remained, specifically to the 12, but there were other people there, men and women, and he asked them, he says, you don't want to leave me too, do you? I'll be honest, I used to think Jesus probably said that, asked that with a sarcastic edge to it. But the more I read the story, the more I understand about Jesus, the more I, I don't see it that way. I don't see it that way because if you notice, there's no, there's no follow-up threat. It's not like Jesus says, you don't want to leave me too, do you? Like the rest of them, because if so, there's hell to pay. It doesn't say that. Why? Because the question didn't flow out of sarcasm. It it didn't flow out of anger or frustration. It flowed out of loving concern. It flowed out of love, out of a desire to be in relationship with these men and women, these few, who stayed with him. Who stayed with him. When he asked the question, Peter, Peter answers. He said, he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and come to know you are the Holy One of God, the divine Messiah, Savior. And it's at this moment, and in this statement, uh, I think we get a glimpse of what true discipleship is, what it looks like. Because with his answer, Peter gives us sort of the irreducible minimum of what it means to be a Christian. First things first, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? I realize, like all other religious type people, Peter was once under the impression that if he could just if he could work hard enough and be good enough and follow the rules, perform the rituals, if he could control his life and morality, then he could prove himself to God, he could earn god's love and favor, get himself to heaven. But at this point, clearly peter. Peter recognized that the path of works oriented religion is a spiritual dead end. It's a spiritual dead end. Because the harder you try to be perfectly good and in control, the more you realize you are neither. Neither. And that's a devastating reality. That's devastating. And yet, that's where true discipleship begins. It's not by saying, I can do it, I can be good enough, I can keep the rules, I can make it by myself, I don't need anybody's help. That's not where discipleship starts. Discipleship starts by humbly admitting we're not good enough. We're broken, man. Severely broken and powerless and helpless. It's saying, Lord, to whom shall I go? Who else should I go to? For Peter, it was was a rhetorical question because he knew the answer. He says, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. You have the, the message of eternal life, which implies to me true discipleship involves listening, listening carefully to the good news, listening carefully to what Jesus, what Jesus says, thinking deeply about the claims Jesus makes, claims that were and remain today profoundly different from founders of all other religions, because all others claim to show us how to find God, Jesus came and said, I am God, come to find you. Completely different. Completely unique. But I'm sure the false disciples the deserters that day couldn't, couldn't stand it when he suggested such a thing. I thought he was a they thought he was a decent rabbi. I mean, they experienced his compassion. They, they witnessed him do the miraculous. And yet when Jesus tells the crowd, I am the bread from heaven. This bread is my flesh, which I will give my life. I will sacrifice my life for the life of the world. You have to eat my flesh. You have to drink my blood. You have to believe in me. They didn't like that. They didn't like it. You know why they didn't like it? They didn't like it because Jesus was essentially saying to them, You guys aren't good enough. You're not moral enough. You're, 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 you're You're too profoundly broken. You can't solve your own sin problem. So, in love, I've come to do for you what you can't do for yourselves. In spite of all your efforts, God owes you nothing. And therefore, it has to be a matter of divine grace. It has to be. Salvation is a gift that you receive, it's not something you earn. My life for yours. But religious people tend to choke on that idea because they have such an inflated opinion of themselves. And And yet this is what makes the good news of Jesus so good. The grace of God offered to us. So Peter says to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the word, you have the message of eternal life. And then he says, we have come to believe, we've come to know that you are who you say you are, the Holy One of God. And by stating it this way, we have come to believe, we have come to know, tells me that belief in discipleship is a process. It's a process. It begins by recognizing and admitting to our own sinfulness, our own helplessness. It requires we consider the good news, the message of grace, the claims of Jesus, which then hopefully invites us and leads us to believe in him as Savior. And then what? And then we stay close to him. We don't leave him, we don't turn and walk away, we don't desert him, for he is the bread of life. He is our food and our drink, our ultimate priority, our only hope, and so we love him and we obey him no matter what. That, my friends, is true discipleship. And here's an important fact to keep in mind. Jesus knows the difference. He knows the difference. He knows the difference between false disciples and true disciples. When it comes to faith, there's no fooling him. You can't pull the wool over God's eyes. He knows us inside and out. He knows us inside and out, which can be a wonderful thing to know or it can be a a horrific thing to know, depending on, on where you are in your relationship with him, I suppose. But think about what he says to the 12 here. He says, have I not chosen you yet? One of you is a devil. Ray K. Summary. Judas was hanging around with Jesus, following him everywhere. He claimed to be, believe in Jesus as the Messiah. He looked like a disciple, talked like a disciple, walked like a disciple, hung around other disciples, but it was a show, It's just a show. It's a spiritual ruse, because underneath it all, he did not believe, not really, and Jesus knew it. He knew it. And that begs the question, what does Jesus know about me? What's the truth about me? what does Jesus know about you? What's the truth? Is he the bread of life? Our food and drink, our priority? Is he the savior of the world? Do you believe that or not? True disciple, false disciple? What do you say? More importantly, what does God say? You can't fool him. Let's pray. Our Father, it is so easy for us as human beings to be kind of pulled along with the crowd. I think we learned that early in our in our lives growing up. We see it in our children. Peer pressure, uh, the pressure to conform to our friends and the, the crowd around us. It's a it's a reality of human experience. And it doesn't end with childhood, it doesn't end with adolescence, it continues into adulthood. Because we too are influenced by the crowd around us. Wanting to please, thoughtlessly being pulled along by the group, sometimes in a good way, sometimes not so much. But the truth is, following Jesus, believing in your son what he's done for us a savior is not a it's not a group decision to believe or disbelieve it's an individual one each of us has to make and there's no there's no fooling you on it we can hang around with disciples we can talk like disciples we can talk church talk we can we can we can look the part day after day week after week and yet, when you look at our hearts, when you look at our lives, you say, I know the truth. My prayer is this morning that your spirit would, would work in our lives and would reveal to each and every one of us in this room what is true. Give us the courage to admit what is true. I pray that each and every one of us in this room would make the decision to follow hard after Jesus, for He is the bread of heaven. He is our food and drink. He is our hope. He is our life. He is our priority. May we never leave Him. May we obey Him, and stay close. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Thank you all for being with us this morning, and. Um, now, I hope you've made a, that firm decision to be a follower of Jesus. Um, I think at the end of this encounter when they're all together and all the people leave him and he turns to those who remain and asks them the question and they say, yes, we're, we're staying. And then I think of Judas, you know, who's just kind of playing along and eventually turns on Jesus and deserts him, betrays him. And... Uh, and that the other 11 go on, with the exception of John, uh, the other 10 then, all gave their life. They were, all, they were all martyred for their faith. All of them, they gave everything they had for Jesus because they believed he was who he was, said he was. John had the privilege of dying of old age, but that they all gave their lives. They, they, they demonstrated they were true disciples, true followers. How are we doing that? What is the evidence in our lives? I challenge you to think about that. It's an important question because we can't fool God. So my hope is that you know him, that you're committed fully to him. And if you want to talk more about that, some of our prayer team folks will be down here following the service. Certainly, they'll be happy to talk with you about it. Okay? Um, Also, I hope you can come back next week. Join us uh, as we continue the series. We'll take a look at another encounter that uh, is pretty well known, but I think it has some hidden gems in it that we need to talk through and and consider uh, with one another. All right? And in the meantime, have a great week. Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we can uh, go our way. But Father, once again, our worship does not end today. It's not just a a one-hour-a-week deal. Our lives are to be acts of worship. A faith in you changes not just how we think, but how we live every single day. Is it? Has it? I pray that we'd be honest about it, and if not, Lord, may we reevaluate our commitment to you. But my hope is, in a world that desperately needs some good news, I hope and I pray that your church would leave this place today and live our lives in such a way to reflect Jesus, his love, his grace to those who need to hear it. We ask your hand of grace and peace rest on your church now, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here, guys. We'll see you next week.